Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Yep, everybody alive and alert? All right, well, it is good to be with you. I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us this morning. If you are new, we are so thankful for you and thankful that you would come and choose to worship with us. My name is Logan Reynolds. I get to serve here as the senior pastor, and it's such an honor and a blessing to get to serve alongside of you and worship with you this morning. Now, many of you may not know this about me. You might not know this about me, but I am incredibly persistent. Some might even say annoyingly persistent. For whatever reason, God has designed me in such a way that if I see something, I am going to go after it until I get it. And I don't know why that is, but that is very true. It's probably best demonstrated. Uh, When I was a 16-year-old boy, I walked into this auditorium, huge auditorium. It was a choir concert, and I walked in those doors stumbled in, walked down this, this narrow uh, pathway right down the middle of the aisle, and there I saw this young, beautiful blonde standing up on a stage with a full choir behind her. She was singing Aretha Franklin's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> Little did I know that that moment began a six-month-long pursuit of my best friend and now my wife. I know. Oh, it's so sweet. You have no idea how hard I worked for that. (laughs) It was a long road, lots of no's, but I got there. I got there. I was persistent to pursue her, and little did I know that in that moment, right, in that moment, I had no idea that this was going to be the object of God's goodness in my life. To eventually become my best friend, to come, become my wife, to become a, a partner in life and ministry that I, I just can't really imagine doing apart from doing it with her. Little did I know in that moment that she was going to be the mom of two amazing kiddos, right? Little did I know in this moment God's goodness to me. And I think all too often you and I, we, we struggle with this reality that so often we we are so focused in on the moment, the right here, the right now, that we forget that God is outside of time. He's outside of the moment, and God has a plan for you, and He has a plan for me, and He invites us to be persistent in our pursuit of Him. And so what we're talking about this morning is our persistent pursuit of God, okay? So we're going to pursue Him with a persistence, and then we're going to talk about God's goodness to meet us in that pursuit. So we're going to talk about pursuing God, which is great, but we're also going to talk about God's goodness and why we need to have a right view and a right theology of God's goodness in our pursuit of Him, okay? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 7. We're going to continue our series, As It Is in Heaven. And maybe this is your first time with us this morning, and you're going, well, what, does, what in the world does that mean? 
Well, we're talking about Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is helping us see how do we live in the world and not be of the world, right? So we live in this world. We're in Belton, Texas right now, in case any of you didn't know that. You are in Belton, Texas, and you are at First Baptist Belton. All made it. Good. So that's where you are, right? But here's the reality. If you've said yes to Jesus, if you've placed your faith and your trust in Him, then you are no longer a citizen of this world, just a citizen of Bell County, but rather you are a citizen of a far better kingdom where Jesus is king and He's reigning and He's ruling. And so because of that, we live in this world, but we don't live for this world. We live for a better world. We live for his kingdom and his reign and his rule on this earth. And so we are his ambassadors. So what does that mean? We are to represent him on this earth. We are to be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, which is pretty wild. We, to be, we are to be his representatives. So we're talking about how do we do that? How do we do that? All right. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Read along with me here. This is Jesus speaking. He says this in verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And this is an incredible passage. There's so many things that I want you to see in this passage. But the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus invites you and me to pray. He invites us into relationship with the Father. I want you to think about that. I want you to just let that sit on you. The son of the God of the universe, who hung the stars, the moon, and the sky, who put the universe in motion, is inviting you into relationship with him through prayer. That is a profound truth, that the God of the universe would see you he would know you and he would love you to the point where he would give you an invitation to come and to dine at his table, to have relationship with him. You know, Jesus came to this earth and he went to a cross and there on that cross he died for you and for me and he purchased our forgiveness, our forgiveness for our sins there on the cross. But inherent in that, Jesus also did something else. By the nature of his gift, giving his life for the forgiveness of your sin, he redeemed you. That means that he bought you back. You know what that means? He bought you back to live in relationship with him. He didn't just die for your sins, although that would be enough. But he also gave his life for you so that you would have a relationship with the God of the universe. He has redeemed you. He has bought you back. This is a truth that can only be experienced on this side of the cross, on this side of history. The God of the universe invites us 
to dine with him, invites us to pray, but not only does he invite us to pray, but notice what he says. He promises to answer your prayer. He promises to meet you where you are and to answer your request. In verse 8, he says, everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks, fi- everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be open to you. Think about that. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you need something? Well, just ask me. You're looking for me? Well, go after me. Pursue me. You'll find me. You want to spend time with me? Hey, just come knock on my door anytime, and I'll open it. This is the God of the universe saying, at any moment, at any point in your day, you can enter into his presence and enjoy a relationship with him. How amazing is that truth? Now notice this, because this is important. There's this persistence that we're talking about here, that as we pursue God in a persistent way, here's what we can know to be true. God is not indifferent to you. God is not indifferent to you. As a matter of fact, He knows everything that's going on in your life. He is intimately aware of the highs and the lows and everything in between. He knows everything about you, and He is not indifferent. He does not have His phone out scrolling Instagram. He's not going through TikTok videos as as you're praying to Him. He's not looking over your shoulder to see who else is in the room. God is intimately involved with you. There's an intentionality that God has that he's coming to you as you pursue him in a persistent way. God is meeting you in that persistence with an intentionality that says, hey, whatever you ask, here I am. You seek me, you'll find me. You knock, I'll open the door. So Jesus invites us to pray. He promises that God's going to answer your prayer, but then he casts a vision for our persistence See, this idea of ask, seek, knock, it's a call for you and for me to be persistent. But you have to know that our persistence demonstrates a few things. First and foremost, it demonstrates a life that says, I believe, I have faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So when we come to the Lord and we're persistent with him, that is a demonstration to say, hey God, I believe you. I'm going to believe for it. I'm going to believe that what you have told me is true. I'm going to believe that you're faithful, that you're steadfast, that you're with me, that you're never going to leave me, you're never going to forsake me. It is a persistence in faith. It demonstrates faith. But the other thing that it does is it demonstrates an expectation. Have you ever prayed with an expectation? It changes the way you pray. It changes the way you pray. When you pray in faith, and when you pray with an expectation, not of like, well, God, I just... I just hope that if you, if you would, no, no, God longs for you to come to his presence with an expectation, knowing that he sees you, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he cares for you. It's coming with an expectation to say, God, I'm asking, I'm believing that you're going to come through on this, right? I, I don't know very many kids who come to mom and dad and say, hey, would you just please give this for me? Thinking that God, or thinking that mom and dad's not going to do it. Right, I know in my house, my kids come to me and they want something. They're believing that dad's going to come through. I usually have to disappoint them. But 
they come with an expectation. But thirdly, our persistence in prayer, it demonstrates a commitment to Him. That you're committed to Him. You know, the last sermon series we did was we're talking about being all in, all in with God, all in with one another, all in with our community, all in uh, with, this, with, with, with our church. When we pursue God with a persistence in prayer, we are demonstrating, hey, you know, we're committed to you, God. We're all in with you. And so I think here, here's probably the best way that we could summarize this text. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to pursue God the God of the universe. And in that pursuit, God gives us an open invitation to ask whatever it is that we need and that with that persistence, He is going to meet us and answer our request. That's a summary of this passage. Now, that is true. All of that is true. But hear me, this is where we get all of this wrong. It's the application of this truth that we get wrong. While, yes, it's true that God is offering us an invitation in relationship with Him and that He is going to provide whatever it is that we ask, that is true. However, He always answers your request in accordance with His will, His goodness, and your overall good. You might want to write that down. Because this is where we get this mixed up. God always answers your prayer. There's never a prayer that you pray to Him that He does not answer. But He always answers in accordance with His will, His goodness, and your overall good. We have to remember that God is not a genie. We are not Aladdin. God is not in a magic lamp where we just three wishes and boom, there it is. That's not how God works. Because if God did work that way, guess what? You're God and He is not. God is not enslaved to our requests, but rather He longs for us to come to Him in faith and ask whatever it is that we need. And there is a promise that He is going to answer that request and He is going to do it in accordance with His will, His goodness, and our overall good. Now here's the temptation, and maybe you can relate to this. Over the course of my life, in my prayer time, I come to God and I'm like, God, I just, I need you to come through here, or I need this, or I need that. If God did not answer that favorable, here's what I would do. I would somehow find myself either believing that God is not good, or that somehow, someway, He doesn't really love me. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're going through some tough stuff. And listen, there are people in this room who are going through some tough things. There's people watching online who are going through tough things. We have all experienced tough things where we have gone to the Lord and said, God, would you take this from me? And he didn't. I'll also remind you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes to the Father. And he says, God, take this cup of wrath away from me. And yet, what does he do? He submits to the will of the Father. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so there's this temptation in this moment where God doesn't answer my prayer the way I think he should or the, think, or the way that I hoped he would. And so I begin to think, well, man, is God even good? Does God really love me? 
And that's exactly what Jesus is illustrating for us in this parable. In this parable, I want you to think about the parable we read just a minute ago. If a, if a son comes to his father and, and he comes to his father starving and hungry and he, he asks the father, he said, Dad, I'm, just, I'm hungry, would you give me a loaf of bread? And Jesus says, well, if the father takes a stone that looks like a loaf of bread and he hands that over to his son, Jesus says, man, how wicked is that? Something that it imitates, something that he longs for, and he hands that to him, knowing that it's not going to satisfy him, it's not going to help him, Jesus says, that is wickedness. And in the same way, if a son or a daughter comes to their father and, he's, and they say, dad, I'm so hungry, would you give me some fish? And if the father were to instead not give them a fish, but give them a snake, something that would harm them, that would hurt them, if, if, if the father was to give them something that would be harmful, Jesus says, man, how wicked is that? Now, maybe this morning it would be helpful to put yourself in this particular situation. In Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most amazing passages in the Bible, Paul is writing, and Paul says this, he reminds us, he says, if you are in Christ this morning, meaning you have placed your faith and your trust in him, here's what's happened in your life. Here's what's happened. You have gone from darkness to light. You have gone from stranger to friend. More importantly, you've gone from orphan to son or daughter. Okay? You've placed your faith and your trust in him. You have gone from orphan to son or daughter. If then, if then you are God's son, or you are God's daughter, and you come to him, and you come to him and you say, God, here's what I need, here's what I'm longing for, how much more so is God, who is not tainted by sin, who is not tainted by anything of this world, but who is absolutely perfect, who knows exactly what is good for you in your life, how much more then does your heavenly Father who loves you so much that he would give his son for you, how much do you think he wants to meet your needs? So when God answers your prayer favorably, here's what you can trust. It's in accordance with his goodness. It's in accordance with his will. And it's for your overall good. Now hear me, when God doesn't answer your prayer favorably, here's what you can trust. From your heavenly Father, who loves you, that when God doesn't answer your prayer, or God, when God answers your prayer unfavorably, it's in accordance with his goodness, it's in accordance with his will, and it's for your overall good. But here's the deal. We're talking about God's will. We're talking about God's goodness. What you have to understand is not what I've said, and whether that's true or false, it's true. What you have to understand is that when it comes to push and shove, where we fail is our misunderstanding of God's goodness and His will. As a matter of fact, I would say, I would say that more often than not, we mistake God's goodness for our own. 
See, we're left to trust that God is going to answer according to his will, his goodness, and our overall good. But then, knowing that that's true, when we're experiencing great suffering or pain or whatever it is that's going on in our world, where we fail is not in believing that it's true up here, but believing it's true right here. Aligning our brains and our hearts together so that it's not an intellectual belief, but it is a wholehearted belief that what God actually says is true and that he truly does love you and that he truly is good. We misunderstand the reality that in this parable, that while the father in the story knows how to give good gifts to his son and to his daughter, that father is still tainted by sin. No matter how much good you do on this earth, for you and for me, the reality is, is that we're always tainted by sin. I may hold the door open for somebody, and as they walk through, you better believe I'm expecting them to say thank you. Right? If I let somebody in front of me in traffic, and they don't give me that wave, I'm going like, not doing that again. <laughs> Why? Because we're tainted by sin. So even the good that we do, when we provide for our family, when we take care of others, is still tainted by sin. And yet on the other end, God, who is absolutely holy, who is totally perfect, who is not tainted by sin, He's absolutely perfect. His good is what true good really is. Parents, grandparents, you can probably relate to this. With, you can probably relate with this. As a dad, there is nothing that I want to do more than to take care of my kids. Right? I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy. I want them to be whole. If they come to me and they say, hey, I want this, I am going to bend over backwards to see that they get it. But here's the reality. If I know that it is harmful, if I know that it is hurtful, I'm not going to put that in their life. Listen, my kids would love nothing more than to have a diet of donuts, sugar, cotton candy, you name it. They're not going to eat their vegetables, but I bet you they'll eat that. And they would love nothing more than that to be their diet. But what do I know? And what do you know? I know what is good for them. And I am not going to put anything that is harmful or hurtful to them. And we know this to be true. Don't we? You've probably had that conversation with your kids. And then yet we come to the Father and we expect something different. God knows exactly what is best for you. He knows what is best for me and he knows exactly what is best for our church. And he will only answer our prayer in accordance with his will, his goodness, and our overall good. We misunderstand his goodness for our own, but also we misunderstand his will for our own. His will for our own. See, how in the world are we as finite people supposed to discern the infinite will of God? Ever thought about that? Maybe I'm, I, I know I'm weird, but I think about that often. God, what's your will for my life? What's your will for this church? What are you doing? How am I supposed to discern that? 
If I'm the pastor of this church, it's my role and responsibility to seek out God's will for this church. How in the world do I do that? As a finite human, how do I discern the infinite will of God? Well, it's near impossible. And so here's what we do. We begin to fill the infinite with the finite. And what we do is we exchange God's will for our will. We start believing things like it's God's will for us to be happy. We believe that it's God's will for us to be healthy, for our kids and grandkids to be healthy. It's, it's God's will for me to have friends, to, to have a relationship, or maybe to get married and to have kids and, and to go on to have grandkids or to retire in a, in a particular way. Maybe it's God's will for us to have this amount of money in my bank account or this new house or these cars. And while none of those things are bad, none of those things are inherently God's will for your life. They're not bad. And maybe God will be gracious enough to give you those things. But that is not God's will for your life. In fact, when asked what the will of God is, Paul defines it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word to just to say Christ-likeness. If you want to know what is God's will for your life, if you want to know what God's will for our church is, it's that you and I would look more and more and more like Christ. He has justified you. You've placed your faith and trust in Him. You've been made right. You then enter into this process called sanctification where He is making you look more and more and more and more like Christ. And so He allows all of these things in your life, good, bad, and indifferent, all of those things are allowed in your life for one purpose, that you would look more like his son. He wants you to look more like his son. Each of the circumstances ought to lead us to pursue him, to lean into him, and to love him so that as we do that, as we depend on him, as we lean into him, as we pursue him with all that we have and all that we are, that we would look more like him, and therefore we become his ambassadors on this earth where our lives are an appeal to those who do not know Christ of what he is like so that they come to a saving knowledge of him. Your life is a beacon of light on this earth, and it's important that your light comes from the source of all light, who is Jesus. That's his will for your life. That's his will for your life. You know, the story of Job, it's a great example of rightly understanding both God's goodness and dealing with unfortunate circumstances. We've probably all read through the story of the book of Job and, and have felt the weight of all that Job experiences. I want to bring to your attention what, how Job is described in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Job, here's how he's described. The text says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And hear this, he was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. In other words, Job was a righteous man. 
He was not a faithless man. He was a faithful man who is righteous. So righteous was Job that in verse 5, In verse 5, it would tell us that Job would get up every morning, every single morning, and he would go and he would worship the Lord. He would sacrifice an animal for his sins and for the sins of his family. I don't know what y'all are doing before 6 a.m., but Job was sacrificing for him and for his family. He was a righteous man, and yet despite his righteousness, God took everything from him took away his family, took away his wealth, took away his his livelihood, took away his health, took away absolutely everything. And in verse 20, here's how Job responds. Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. I don't know about you, but if I'd lost everything, I don't know that that would be my natural response. And yet Job worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. For the Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in verse 22, the text says that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job loses everything. Job doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He worships. He worships. And then after a long season of long suffering, suffering under the weight and the wrath of God, Job finds himself in a place where he looks up to God and he says, God, why? How in the world? Like, what have I done? I've done all of the right things. I've given you my life. I've given you everything that I have. I've done everything right. So God, why? Why would you allow Satan to do this in my life? And then God answers him. Ask, seek, knock. Job was persistent. Comes before the Lord and there God, as he has promised to do, answers Job. And he doesn't answer him in a sentence. He answers him in four long chapters. From chapters 38 to 41, God answers him. And God doesn't answer in the way that would be expected. But rather, he answers him by questioning him. He says, hey, Job, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Hey, Job, where were you when I set the measurement of the sea, when I filled the depths of the sea with water? Where were you, Job? Where were you when I hung the stars and the moon in the sky? Where were you when I set the universe in motion and I created gravity? Where were you? Where were you when I created the reproductive system? Where were you when I created and filled the seas with with, with animals and created vegetation on this earth? Where were you when I created the beautiful sunsets? Where were you, Job? And here's how Job responds. In chapter 42, Job responds. He says, I know, God, I get it. I now know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Oh, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things that are far too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you can make known to me. And hear this. For I heard of you. 
I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I've heard of you. I've heard about your will. I've heard about your goodness. But now I know it. I now know your will. I now know your goodness. You know, many people would look at the story of Job, myself included, and, and think, goodness, how in the world is, where's God's goodness here? Where's his love here? How can a loving God do such a thing to a faithful man? However, what we see is that while Job thought that he knew God, it was through his suffering, it was through his persistence of God, and God not answering his prayers the way that he thought he should, that Job came to learn God's goodness, came to learn God's love for him, and came to learn God's will. God answers his, your prayers according, according to his will, according to his goodness, and for your overall good. And so in tough circumstances, sure, we can say, God, how in the world, why? How is this for my good? How is this according to your plan? How, how is this a, a, for my good? H how? And yet I think if Job were here today, can't put words in Job's mouth, I don't want to try to do that, but I think if Job were here today, I think he would say to you, hey, I get your suffering. Hey, I understand what, I understand what you're going through. I understand that you've got a sick kid. I understand that you just lost your job. I understand that you feel like there's no hope and no way out. That you've got a sick mom or dad or brother or sister. You're trying to figure out how to pay the bills. Here's what I think Job would say to you. I know it's tough, but just wait and see. I know it's tough, but just wait and see. Because God's not finished in every moment of your trials and your tribulations on this earth are not for nothing, but they're purposeful. They're doing something. The things that are happening to you on this earth are doing something. They're not for nothing. They're creating in you a faith. They're creating in you an image of the Son of God, namely Jesus, in your life. So that you might look more and more and more and more and more like him. And so that he would get more and more and more and more glory for your life. I think what Job would say, I think what we would say, is that I heard of you by hearing. I heard of you by the ear. But now I see you. In other words, I've been told that all of this is true, but through my circumstances, I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true, that it is true. It's in our persistent pursuit of God that over the years we can look back and say, now God, I understand your love, I understand your goodness, and it is enough for me. It's enough for me. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we come to you this morning as finite people in search of the infinite. Recognizing the gap that lies between us and you. Recognizing that all too often we mistake your goodness for our own, thinking that we know what's best for our lives. Mistaking your goodness for ours and your will for ours, thinking that, man, we just, if I just have this stuff, then I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. Or if I'm just healthy, then I'll, that'll be the answer. And yet, God, what you remind us is that you invite us into relationship with you. You invite us into a persistent pursuit of your son. And then you promise that you meet us in that place Offering only your will, your goodness, that is ultimately for our overall good. Father, would you give us a vision for that? Help us, like Job, to understand that our circumstances are doing something in us. That after a lifetime, we will look back and say, God, every second was worth it. Every second was worth it. Every tear was worth it. Every frustrating moment was worth it. Every confusing doctor visit was worth it. It's all worth it because it's producing in us a character that is like your son that invites others to experience what life is truly all about. Lord, may we be your ambassadors on this earth as it is in heaven. May people look at our lives and think, wow, I want what they have. Not what the whole world and everybody else has. I want what they have because it's different. It's different. It's unshakable. It's unshakable impenetrable. Father, we love you. We submit our lives to you. We entrust you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.